All right, pray with me as we get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that uh, helps us to see and understand, opens our ears to hear. And God, I pray as we open your word now that your Holy Spirit, God, would just do that. He would open our eyes to see our ears to hear the truth that is in it. And God, then create within our church the kind of church that's described within this word, God. So I pray as your word is preached, it would have its intended effect in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We're in the week two of our series called Habits. And if you weren't here last week, I'll kind of recap quickly for you. But when we think about habits, the first of the year is a great time to think about our habits because we're a little bit more motivated, especially physically speaking. You know, we know swimsuit season's coming a couple months from now. So a little more motivated physically. You know, we want to get on, you know, a plan of some kind, go to, to, to work out. Probably a lot of you are sore because you worked out for the first time in four years, right, this last week. And, and that's great because as we start thinking about habits, it's important to think about our habits because as I told you last week, we make our habits and our habits make us. And so we need to literally think through what are our habits because we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. And I told you last week, another quote was a lot of times we have uphill hopes, but downhill habits. Our habits don't match our hopes. But here's the thing. If we ever hope to see it, then we need to have uh, habits in our life to make that hope a reality. And so our habits need to match our hopes. That's why we're doing this series. And we want to help us as a church develop some specific spiritual habits in our life. And we did the best thing that I can think of is to go look at Jesus and to see what habits he had. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to do the same thing again today. You can open up to Luke chapter four. We're going to look at our core verse for the series, and then we'll back up a little bit, look at Luke chapter two, and then about halfway through, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 10 and talk about this specific habit that we're going to talk about today. But in Luke chapter four, we see some habits that Jesus had. In fact, I told you last week, he had three habits, three kind of categories of habits, if you will. One was inward habits. You might call those personal habits, personal spiritual disciplines. And those were things like fasting. We talked about how he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he was tempted. And fasting is an important spiritual discipline in our life. And it's one, if you look around America, not a lot of people practice a lot of times, right? Because what happens when we fast, it shows how much, like the Bible says, our stomach is our God. Right? I mean, your stomach this week has been, you know, trying to worship and, you know, you have hunger pains and you have to remind yourself, wow, man, I didn't realize how much of a, of a big deal food is in my life. If you've been fasting from food or, or whatever it is that you've been fasting from. But a a spiritual discipline of fasting is important because the whole reason why we fast, we go without something is not just the going without part. It's so that we can feast on the word of God, which is the second inward spiritual discipline that we saw Jesus do when he was tempted. Three times he quoted, it is written, it is written, it is written. So he was feasting on the word of God. And so we're going without food or going without electronics or going without something in our life so that we can feast on the word of God. That's why we're doing this Bible reading plan. 
And so it's a Bible reading plan. Again, you've heard about it. I'll say it again. It, it just literally five days of reading, a couple chapters a day goes throughout the whole Bible without hitting every chapter and verse in the Bible. And by no means, it means you can't read more. If you want to read more, read more. But it's just a plan for us all to be on as a church to have the regular diet of reading through the scriptures. Because every study that's ever been done about the greatest catalyst for spiritual growth, they all say the same thing. The Bible is the greatest catalyst. We, see, we saw that this week in the two kids. I mean, how cool is that? To trust in Christ just because their family was reading the Bible together. You know that uh, uh, Hebrews eleven six verse, by faith or without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so one eight-year-old boy said, I can't please God because I don't have faith. Then he trusted Christ. And that was just simply from reading the scripture. So that's a spiritual discipline we see with Jesus. The third one was praying. Jesus had a regular habit of going away early in the morning, typically for him to pray. And so all those kind of fall in the category of inward disciplines or personal spiritual disciplines. Today, we're going to look at the second category that we see here in Luke chapter four, verse 16. It's our core verse for this series. So let's read it. Verse 16 of chapter four says, and he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his what? Custom. Now, I know it's a balmy 29 degrees outside, so it's cold out there, but let's, let's warm it up in here, all right? Let's read that again, but let's say that with some heat, all right? As was his what? Custom. custom. Much better. Thank you, Jasper, as well. As was his custom, as was his habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So two other disciplines we see here. One we'll deal with next, this week, one we'll deal with next week. The first one for this week is he went to the synagogue. This is what we're calling communal disciplines. Jesus not only had personal spiritual disciplines like fasting, reading the Bible, and praying, but Jesus also had communal disciplines, things that he did with the community, with the people of God. And this is the most explicit one because it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. That just means the meeting place or the house of God. It's, it's not so much about the place, it's more about the people. And so he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Now, again, I said this last week, but I think it bears to be repeated. A lot of times, I think we forget that Jesus, in addition to being the son of God, was also the son of man. Yes, he was the eternal, uh, co-eternal word of God, but he was also human. And he had to grow in every single way that we have to. Wisdom and stature and favor with both God and men. And it was his habits that formed him. And one of the habits that you see was Jesus had the habit of being together with the people of God. Jesus had a habit of going to the synagogue, the Bible says. And this is a habit that all of us need to develop in our life. If you're here today, listen to me, great. You're starting off the new year, great. But I wanna encourage you to do everything that you can to make this a regular discipline in your life. But I want you to understand, it's hard and I get it because you're busy. So when everybody says, how you doing? I'm busy. I'm almost like that, I don't like that word anymore because it's just, it's just a word to almost kind of like validate ourselves. I'm busy. Well, you can be busy and have no purpose, Right? And so the goal is not busyness. The goal is purposeness. And so I don't want to say to people, I'm busy anymore. It doesn't mean I don't have a lot going on. I do, but I want to make sure I'm doing the right things. So busyness is never a reason not to gather with the people of God. 
You're busy. We're all busy. Your kids are busy. They're going to have things, even games and stuff on Sundays. And it doesn't mean you can't ever miss. It just means it's got to be a priority in your life, in your family. Here's a promise I can make you. Just like I did last week when it comes to fasting and spiritual disciplines. If you'll make a commitment to be in the house of God with the people of God every weekend that you can this year, the more the better, I promise you, your life will be different. Your life will be better. And I don't mean better just in that detrite sense. I mean your life will have more meaning, more depth, because we're going to get into what happens when we gather. And so I want to encourage you to make this a discipline in your life, to make this a discipline in your family's life, because that's what we see also in Jesus's family. Flip back now a chapter two in Luke chapter two, and I want to show you, I'm going to start on the screens with verse 46, but as I was going back over there, uh, over this, this morning, there was a couple verses that jumped out to me that I wanted to highlight too, as you're getting ready for that. It's not here on the screen, but I'm just going to kind of reference them. Luke 2, verse 41 and 42 says this about Jesus's earthly parents. It says they went up to Jerusalem every year for the festival of the Passover, according to custom. So in Jesus's family, his family had the habit of going up to the temple now, the temple was in Jerusalem, and there were certain festivals that they were commanded by God to go up to every year. They lived in Nazareth, and they had synagogues there, as you saw in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. But then occasionally, a couple times a year, they'd go up to the temple. And the Bible says they did this every year according to custom, according to their habit. So Jesus' family had a habit of gathering together with the people of God. I just want to highlight as families, if you are a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, it is so imperative. It is so vitally important to make sure that your kids are regularly gathering with the people of God as early as you can get it. Right? I mean, you can start checking your kids in. I think it's like three months old and they don't have a say. So then, right, they're just there. But it doesn't mean that we're just doing childcare there. They're praying for them, helping train them, doing everything that we can. And all the way through, up, to, uh, up through high school, we've got different environments for kids and students. And so it's important as parents to make sure our kids are in those environments where they can learn about Jesus on their level. And, and here's why I, I just, let me step up on my soapbox for a second. I just want to encourage and somewhat challenge us as, as parents Somewhere along the way in that process, your kid's gonna be like, I don't know if I wanna go anymore. And I wanna encourage you as a parent, that's a discipleship moment to have a conversation with them. Because more often than not, a reason why they don't wanna go is some other underlying reason. But I just wanna encourage us to take the stance of like, no, our family, for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Because... For them and their spiritual growth, sometimes we got to stand in the gap. This is what we do when it comes to their education, right? You know how many times my kids have said, I don't want to go to school. And I'm like, put your clothes on, sucker, because you're going, right? <laughs> I'm taking you. Hop in the truck. We don't let them dictate that, even sports, right? It's a parenting kind of discipleship moment. Hey, just because it gets hard doesn't mean we give up. Doesn't mean we give in. And so I want you to see for your kids, the best thing that you can do is to make it a priority in your life because it's more caught than it is taught. 
It's more caught if they are growing up in a family that just says, hey, this is what we do. This is our custom. Now, when we go there, it's important to make sure we're doing what we need to be doing. Now look at verse 46. Verse 46 through verse 49. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, if you know the story, they were there for the festival. Jesus's parents leave. They think Jesus is with them. Strike one, right? They assume Jesus is with them, but he's not. He hung back in the temple. And what is he doing there? Look, it says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So here's Jesus. At this time, we, we know it's young Jesus, boy Jesus. He's 12 years old. And yet, he was there for the festival, so he would have been there for multiple days. It was over multiple day festival. It's time to go home, and Jesus is like, I ain't had enough yet. So Jesus hangs back in the temple. And then it says this, he was listening to the teachers. The word there, listen, means to hear with intention. Don't you know that you can hear without listening? You can hear things without really listening with intention. And this happens quite often, right? It's called selective hearing. And we always joke in my house, because I do have a hearing problem. I failed the hearing, I've said this before, failed it every year. Remember back in school, if you did the hearing test, we did it every year, I failed it every year. There's certain tones and frequencies I can't hear. And I always tell Lindsay that her tone falls right within that range, right? Like I just, <laughs> I can't hear it. It's just, you know, that's not a lie. Um, but what we see for the young Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus, he's in the temple listening. He's hearing with intention. And it also says he's asking them questions. So he's engaging in what he's hearing. So my point is, it's important to make sure kids are in environments, students are in environments where they're being instructed and they're engaging by asking questions. This is why in Rev Kids and Rev Students, we have a large group teaching time. We also have a small group time where they talk about the message. They talk about what they heard. They pray for each other. They're dialoguing, asking questions because we see Jesus doing that. But again, it's so important for us as people to do that, to come in and be instructed, to hear with intention, and then to engage with the material, to ask questions about what we've just been told. And the primary way we do that here is in groups. Groups meet in people's homes, typically 12 to, 10 to 12 people, and they go over the message. They're talking about what they've heard. They're asking questions. They're engaging with the instruction. We see that in Acts 2. They met at the temple. They met in homes, heard the apostles teaching, and then they talked it over. So very simply, that's the best ways as a church that we gather. We gather together in large group time like this, and we gather together in small group times to go over, ask questions, the instructions that we heard. So you see Jesus from a very young age doing this. You see Jesus from a young age. Now, parents, I just want a side note here. Your kid ain't Jesus. So they may not be requesting to hang out in the temple for an extra three days. Right? 
They may not be listening and engaging like you want them to. Again, great discipleship moment. First thing I would say is, are they seeing that in you? Are they, are they just kind of repeating what they've seen in you? And it's a great moment to engage into their life. And so if your kid is really struggling, here's what we recommend a lot, specifically to whatever area they're in. Maybe you want to serve with them in that area so you can help them engage with it too. So if your kids and rev kids, it might be good to, to serve there, to see what they're talking about, to see what's happening. Not that you're one of those helicopter parents that's you know, just making sure that they're doing what they need to be doing, but, but you're engaging with what they're engaging with. Same with students. I've got an eighth grade son who comes to students every Wednesday night. And so my wife was like, hey, I gotta drop him off. I gotta pick him up. I might as well serve. So she's a seventh grade girl, small group teacher, small group leader. And so she's here. She's hearing what he's hearing. She's engaging with what he's engaging in. So again, it, it may not be that your, your kid is like, I just want to sit and listen to the house of God. But it doesn't mean we give up on that. It doesn't mean that we just throw in the towel on that because it's gonna be hard. I mean, every spiritual discipline you ever do is gonna be hard. For those of you who've been fasting this week, has it been easy? No, you're driving by Krispy Kreme hot lights on, your car just kind of naturally gravitates in, right? You're in your office and people are eating, you're like, <laughs> right? I mean, it's hard. But we gotta help our kids and again, the best way to help our kids is for them to see how it's changing us. For them to see how we're engaging with the scriptures, how we're meeting together with the people of God and asking questions. Now, look at how his parents respond. It says, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I mean, just imagine, it's one thing to lose your kid, it's another thing to lose the son of God, right? So here's Mary and Joseph thinking Jesus is with them, but he ain't. And they're like, oh no, Lord, we messed it up. He's only 12. We, I'm sorry, Lord. I mean, you got to imagine Mary was, like I said, at Christmas was a young teenager more than likely when the angel came to her. So she might be early twenties right now. And she's lost Jesus. But listen to how he responds. Verse 49, it says, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, side note, this is not Jesus talking back to his parents. This is not Jesus being snarky with his parents. Because in the next few verses, it says he went with them and was submissive to them. But this was Jesus saying to his family, hey, I have a priority above this family to another family. I've got a priority in my life to be with the people of God in the house of God. Depending upon the translation, it's either must be in my father's house or about my father's business. We talked about that in our Seek and Save series a couple years ago. Either is fine. The point is being with the people of God, doing the things of God. So Jesus is saying, hey, this is the direction of my life. This is the purpose of my life. You need to understand that this is what I'm about and so here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus had that habit. Jesus had a habit of being in the house of God, of being about the things of God. And you were like, well, yeah, he's the son of God. Well, so are you if you're in him. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. The Bible says we're co-heirs with Christ. So as a parent, you're like, well, I'm not raising Jesus. Well, guess what? If they're in Jesus, you're raising a son of God, just like Jesus is. 
So equally important. And so we have to make this habit, this custom in our life to say, you know what? Above other priorities, I'm gonna be planted in the house of God. Didn't you know that's where I gotta be? Didn't you know that that's what I gotta be about? So we see it from a young age in Jesus. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Just go to your right if you're in your Bible. If you're electronically, it'll be a little easier to find it. So go past the Gospels, Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians. It's before you get to Peter. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, a couple verses. I'm going to start in verse 24 and 25. Then we'll come back to verse 23. Because 23 is really the heart of the matter. 24 and 25 is built on 23. But I want to kind of do it backwards. In verse 24 and 25 of Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about what we do when we gather together. So I want you to understand when I'm talking about gathering together, I'm not just talking about showing up, showing up on time. It is helpful. Uh, I'm not just talking about showing up and leaving after the service is over. All right. When I'm talking about meeting together, gathering together, being in the house of God, I'm talking about there's some specific things that we do when we gather. And that's what Hebrews 10 addresses. Look at this verse 24 and 25. And let us, when you're fasting, that looks like, and let us. You're like, oh, even let us would be great right now, right? <laughs> and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the, what's that next word there? Let's try that again. All right, come on, both, both locations. As is the what? Habit, Habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So some specific instructions here on what we do when we gather together. It says, listen, not neglecting to meet together. Interestingly enough, that word there, meet together, is the Greek word episynagogo. It's the same exact word, just with a Greek prefix on the front of it, as in Luke 4.16 when it says he went to the synagogue. So we go to the synagogue so that while we're there, we can be synagoguing. Uh, we wouldn't say that in English, but that's the best Greek I can say it, right? When we gather together, we're not just coming to a place, but we're coming to be with people. And what happens when we meet together, he says, is we are to stir up one another. Now, here's what's interesting, and I pointed this out if you were here during our One Another series. The word stir up one another literally means to provoke one another. Now, let me ask you a question. We're pretty good at provoking one another, aren't we? But it's not normally to love and good works. See, the word provocation here means, listen to this, an act of stirring up emotions, feelings, and responses can be positive or negative. I love this one. Stimulating a change in motivation or attitude. There are plenty of people that stimulate a change in motivation or attitude in my life. They stir, stir some stuff up. You know what I'm saying? But I want you to hear me, and I'm saying this as lovingly, as pastorally as I can. There is no gift of drama in the church. No one's got the gift to stir up drama. Gossip is not a gift. 
The Bible makes that incredibly clear. Don't be busybodies. Don't be gossipers. Why? Because it destroys the unity that the Holy Spirit's trying to create. So I want you to understand something. The Bible does say to stir up, but not to stir up anger and gossip. Stir up love and good works. That's what we're called to do. Because that's of God. So if you're stirring up drama and divisiveness, that's of the devil. It's just as simple as I can make it because the devil would want nothing more than to destroy the unity that God wants to create. Let me say it to you like this. The devil wants to destroy the family of God. And the best way to do that is from within. Because anytime we're attacked from without, we unite against a common enemy. But anytime we're attacked from within, we turn inward and start fighting. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, we're called to stir up one another to love. The word there too is a preposition of direction. So again, the problem is a lot of us are provoking one another just in the wrong direction. To love, that's God-like love, to good works. Almost, we could say to stir up one another to love Jesus and grow people. What a novel idea to think, right? Someone should make that a vision of a church. You say, where'd you get that from? From the Bible? The word grows an acronym, gospel, relationships, obedience. What's the W? Works. It's almost like we got it straight out the Bible, man. To love Jesus and good works. How do we do good works? As the gospel works in our life through relationships, obedience, we produce fruit and we spread that out. So, So that's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of the people of God, gathering together. And here's the basic point. Hebrews is saying, listen, you can't stir up one another unless you're meeting with one another. You're like, oh, I can't stir up some stuff on Facebook. Yeah, but that's a different kind of stirring up, right? And so my point is saying is you can't stir up one another to love and good works if you're not in relationship with one another. Again, that's why we have groups. That's why we have serving teams. It's all a part of our strategy to get you connected in relationships. But then I love how he says this, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, encouraging. The word encouraging has several different kind of uses. One is to exhort or comfort. David talked about this in our series, one another. We did last year, encouraging one another. It means to come alongside of, to call for aid, to comfort in affliction, See, the best way to stir up one another is to encourage one another. That's how they fit together. It took my coaches in sports a lot of years to, de- to determine the fact that yelling and being down on me wasn't the best way to encourage me. I don't like people just telling me I'm sorry, and that's not how I get motivated. As one coach told me my sophomore year, I was playing varsity. He was like, Gertis, don't go out there and play like a girl tonight. What does that mean, coach? Like, you don't know my sister. My sister's two years older than me. She's more redneck than me. She, she decks people, knocks them out, for real. She mows the, the lawn with a six-pack of, of uh, Coors Light on the back of the riding lawnmower. I mean, she redneck, coach. I mean, playing like a girl might be the best thing I could do. But it, what I want is somebody to come alongside of me and exhort and encourage and comfort and say, man, you got this. He who's in you is greater than he's in the world. And so that's what the church is called to do. The church is called to gather together, stir up one another and encourage one another. 
Now, a lot of us are sitting here thinking, man, that'd be great. I'd love to be a part of a church like that. But I wanna show you why a lot of times that doesn't happen. Go back to verse 23. The reason why those actions don't happen a lot of times is because verse 24 and 25 is built on verse 23. Look at verse 23. There's that lettuce again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You want to know why stirring up one another to love and good works and encouraging one another doesn't happen often. It's because we have so much pretense in the church. What I mean by pretense is a lot of pretending. You good, brother? I'm good, brother. Great, brother. Good to see you, brother. All right, it's next week, brother. But the Bible says, let us hold fast to our confession. See, we've lost the discipline of corporate confession in the church. What I mean by that is this. The discipline of confession is when we are admitting that we need help. Now, the church for centuries had the act of confession in the Catholic church, still a practice to this day. You got confessionals where you got priests. You go in and confess. Great act. But what happened in a typically a lot of Protestant churches, which is what we are, is we said, no, we don't need a priest because Jesus is our priest, but we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and we just quit confessing. Where the Bible says, confess your sins to one another. It took me over a decade after I trusted Christ to realize confessing to Jesus is not enough. I also have to have horizontal confession, confessing to other people. Because see, when I confess to other people my struggles, then they're more motivated to stir me up and encourage me because they know I need the help. So here's what I want you to hear me say. The American church so often is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I'm not talking about theological depth. I'm talking about just shallowness of people. You want to know why? Because we're all so busy and we're all so much I, don't, I can't even say this correctly. We're all pretending. We feel like if we are honest at church that we'd ask you to leave. Can I just tell you, one of my dreams for 2018 is to eradicate pretense out of Revolution Church. And here's why. I've shared this often, but it's, you know, some things bear to be repeated. When I got saved, you know, grew up not going to church. And when I got saved in middle school, you know, my life was radically changed. And I went to a small East Texas Southern Baptist church, great church. But a lot of times everybody was just fake because that's kind of what was expected. You really went to church to show people that you were holy, not to actually try and be holy, which is just a lame hobby. And so I learned from about 12 years old to about 20 how to kind of fake it till you make it. Until I got to be a sophomore in college, and I first went to a, a Baptist college because I thought that's what you're supposed to do if you're going to be a pastor. Literally didn't know anything about Martin Luther. I thought Martin Luther, Martin Luther King. When they were talking about Martin Luther, I mean, that's what I thought. 
which Martin Luther King tomorrow, uh, celebrating his accomplishments, was a pastor creating a community. Praise God. But my sophomore year in college, I got so disenfranchised with the church because I got tired of my Christian friends judging me for my struggles. And we were sitting around a table at Waterburger one night, which is a great place to have a small group, by the way, if we had any around here. One of y'all should franchise them. I'm just saying, you'll make a killing out here. Um, whoa, some of y'all know what's up. All right. What a burger, baby. And, um, and I said, you know what? Can I not be honest? Can I not confess? I'm struggling. So I made a decision in my heart. You know what? I'm going to go be a missionary in another country where there's not all this American pretense. That's what I was going to do. So I tried and tried and tried to be a missionary. And God wouldn't let me. He kept shutting door after door. Until I felt him say one day, Jason, yeah, you could go and experience that. But I want you to bring that experience here because my American church is sick. I want you to be here and create a different kind of church. So that's when God put it in my heart to be a part of a different kind of church. I thought I'd start one. But here's the heart. See, when I confess, I'm admitting that I'm not my own savior. And it's really hard to have a non-pretense church, especially in the American South. But here's what I'm saying. What if we said, you know what? I'm just going to not pretend. And we really believed it's okay to not be okay. Now, we all know it's not okay to stay there. But there's only there that I can start if I'm ever going to get better. So what if within our church, within our groups, we could talk about our struggles? We could come into a group and say, you know what? What the pastor just said last weekend, I'm no good at that. Can y'all help me? You want to talk about changing the atmosphere of your group? This is why we have other groups as well. We've got recovery groups that meet here on Monday nights. If you have some kind of struggle or addiction, a lot of you didn't think you had any until you started fasting. Maybe you need to come on Monday nights because food is your God, right? And so we've got other groups to help you in your honesty. And I want to let you know something. If you come, you can be honest about your struggles with no fear of rejection or shame. Because people leading that are saying, hey, I'm recovering too. I will rather people leave our church if they're going to be pretentious than those who are being honest. We also have other groups like divorce care. If you've gone through that painful process, meets on Monday nights as well. We've got grief share. If you've lost someone, a loved one, doesn't really matter, kid, parent, whatever. And people who lead that have gone through the painful experience of loss. And, and all those groups are is a way to come together and say, man, we are undone. We don't know what to do. We call them support groups, right? A lot of times. But we all need one. There's also another ministry starting this year that I'm so excited about called the Prodigal Child Ministry. A group that's meeting. If you've got kids that are not walking with the Lord, then there's a group for that. Again, all that information's on our website. But here's what I want us to see. The only way that we can stir up and encourage one another is if we're honest about our struggles. There's a confession. Because see, confession breeds hope and hope breeds change. 
Confession is saying, listen, I don't have it all together, but I know God does. That's what happens when we confess. Listen, I mean, this is what amazes me with the church world sometimes. You can't be a Christian unless you confess your sins. Unless you come to Christ and confess, I'm a sinner, I need you to save me. But then we thought that was the end of confession. No, I'm still a sinner. And I've got to confess. And so why would it feel weird? Christians should be the best confessors. You see what I'm saying? Let me leave you this one last quote. Or if not, I'll just preach all day long. One last quote. It's here on the screen. It's by a guy named Richard Foster who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline. I told you about it last week. Listen to what he said. The discipline of confession brings an end to pretense. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. Honesty leads to confession and confession leads to change. May God give grace to the church once again to recover the discipline of confession. Yes and amen. May God give Revolution Church the grace in 2018 to recover the discipline of confession. When we're saying to people, man, I am not okay. And and, and just a word. When someone comes and confesses to you, please do not immediately stand in judgment on what they just said. Because if you do, you're denying the fact that you're in the same boat as them. You're a sinner in need of grace too. So that's how it works. We're saying, listen, man, we're all beggars sitting at God's table. As your pastor, that's what I'm saying to you. Listen, in case you hadn't figured this out yet, I ain't Jesus. I'm saved by Jesus, but I struggle with sin. I struggle with doubts, with fear, with anxiety, as we were talking about earlier, but God is faithful. He who promised is faithful. What would happen in our church if we really believed that God was faithful, so faithful to forgive sins, if we can confess them to one another? So again, I don't know where you're at or what you're going through, but I want you to understand something. You're saved by confession and you grow by confession. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for your word and for your spirit like we prayed that I pray God that as your word has been read now that it would have its intended effect in our lives and God there's really two kinds of people here those that have not confessed you as their savior and God I pray right now they would do that nobody looking around or talking if if you've never trusted Christ to save you. The Bible says you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart you'll be saved. So if you want to trust Christ for the first time, confess your sins, ask him to forgive you, then I'm going to lead you in a a confession. And it's not so much the prayer that saves you, it's God that saves you. This is just you responding back to the grace he's showing you. So if you want to trust Christ for the first time, I want you to pray with me again to yourself, not out loud. Say, God, I confess I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Forgive me. Thank you so much for loving me. 
that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed to trust Christ for the first time, I want you to do one thing for me. There's confession and then there's profession. And profession of our faith mainly is in baptisms, but we wanna know about your decision today. So if you trusted Christ for the first time today, again, nobody looking around or talking, will you just simply raise your hand so we can see that, so we can know that you trusted Christ? Thank you, thank you. We got some men and women gonna walk around, put a bag in your hand. There's a Bible, some other resources in there to help you. But then that second group of people that would be the group that I'm in, you've confessed Christ as your savior but you just struggle being honest sometimes. This is your opportunity today to confess to one another. And listen, I'm not talking about just like you've got deep, dark secrets, and maybe you do. I'm just talking about confessing to one another, hey man, I, I want you to know I need you. So why a lot of times I don't like the term accountability because it's all about nailing somebody as opposed to loving somebody. But it's high time we be accountable for each other, not just to each other. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can grow without the discipline of gathering together and confessing to one another. And so maybe in your marriage, in your home, in your church, Maybe you're not even in a group. Maybe you need to get in one. You can create a different kind of atmosphere if you'll lead it out in confession. If you've wronged your spouse, confess. If, even if you've not parented your kids correctly, confess. Nothing power, more powerful than our kids seeing us confess. And in the church, can we just have a church that is no longer pretentious? And, and again, I'm not saying this with some kind of anger or anything like that. I'm just saying that's my dream to have a church where Christians can be honest because all of us need the grace of God. None of us should act holier than we are because we're not. If we can create that kind of atmosphere, you watch out because the Holy Spirit's gonna blow through here like he never has before. God, that's what we want. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things. One, can we give it up for those who trusted Christ? Man, that's awesome. Congratulations. One of the reasons why we have you celebrate and clap is so that people can know that we're excited about that. But two, so that we're publicly acknowledging, hey, man, we're all sinners too. Praise God. And that's part of what I'm talking about. And so if you need to talk with somebody, pray with somebody, we've got response team people down front that would love to do that for you. Uh, love to help in any way that we can. If you're not in a group, man, take an opportunity to sign up for that. But more than anything, have a heart this year to say, you know what, we're going to make a commitment to be in the house of God, to stir up one another, encourage one another, and confess to one another. All right? I love you. We'll see you next week.